The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. And welcome to this What's Working in Washington Extra. Big issue that comes up very often these days is is corporate compliance, and more importantly, corporate crime. There's a lot of things that come into whether or not somebody should take on a board seat and or be a CEO, and and also how you manage a business properly in an ever more increasingly difficult regulatory and legal environment. To talk about these issues today, I've got three experts here in the studio. Our first expert is Sean Wright. She's a partner with Blank Rome. Sean, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. Our second guest is Ayman Rizkala. He is with Ackerman, and he is also a partner with that firm. Thank you, Jonathan. And our third guest is Richard Levick, founder of Levick. Jonathan, great to be here. This is something that concerns me, frankly, although I don't currently serve in any corporate public boards. I do do a lot of board stuff, and there's stuff going on now, right, that, that really has gotten my attention. Uh, let's level set, and let's begin I've just been asked to become the CEO of a public company or the director of a public company. Should I be doing the victory dance or should I be uh, uh, considering it more carefully? Sean, I'll start with you. So I think you, Jonathan, you should really do a victory dance. It's very prestigious to be asked to be on a public company board or to be in the C-suite of a public company. But along with that victory dance, you, you have to do your due diligence and you have to do your homework and you have to know kind of what the co- the compliance structure of the company is, what your team looks like, what your obligations are, and what does this mean for you in your individual capacity? Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, one of the questions you really should, one of the first questions you should ask is, how much is your DNO insurance? Right. Your director's an officer. <laughs> insurance. insurance, exactly, because that's goes, the, the bigger the company, the bigger your exposure. And depending on the area, you may want at least $100 million or more. Uh, so that's one of the first questions you should do after your victory dance. Okay. One of the first questions you should ask. So I should, I should. Uh, I'll come back to the insurance. Why that matters in a moment, Richard. Uh, from your standpoint, having worked with lots of CEOs and boards that suddenly find themselves in hot water, what should I be thinking about going in? Well, you know, because you've got me on the air, Jonathan. You know, I'm going to be the existentialist here. And the existential question that one board member from a Fortune 50 company asked me recently was. Are boards still relevant? That is, not only do we have the liability, not only do we have the tsunami of laws and regulations, but we also have a speed that means that when boards are meeting quarterly or twice a year, it's very hard for them to be in a position where they're going to make a substantial difference. Well, let's talk about that because you say, are boards still relevant? The answer, I think, from the standpoint of how this a corporation is structured is you have to have boards because boards are supposed to represent the interests of the shareholders or maybe broader constituencies. I, I often joke that corporations may be the last bastion of democracy in our society. Uh, one share, one vote, one director, one vote. So I think they're relevant. To my mind, the question you just identified it, uh, uh, I am, you, you, you jokingly got to it with the DNO, but the issue, to my mind, is directors are supposed to exercise oversight, which creates personal liability for them. How does that work? You know, it's been well settled that as a director, you have oversight obligations. You need to know what management is, what your C-suite is doing, and you're supposed to oversee it. Whether and so it helps to have some background in the area. For example, you you may not necessarily want to take somebody that's an athlete and put him on the board of directors of a healthcare company. 
and if but that's fine, if you choose to do that, you need to educate yourself about the area because you have oversight. How can you have oversight of a company if you don't know what the business is? And I think that adds to that your fiduciary responsibility. So you understand that when you join a board, it's not I'm just on the board. I now have a responsibility and you have many different um, people that you're responsible. You have your management, you have your shareholders, you have a lot of people that you are responsible to. So when you're taking on that role, you're taking on, as Anna said, this this, uh, obligation to have that oversight and to pay attention. And I think also sometimes um, while boards are relevant, you need boards to kind of level set your organization and make sure your management is doing what they should be doing. Because, again, when you have this, these um, stakeholders, one being your shareholders, who's going to look out for them if it's not those, that board? And as public corporations get larger and larger, the board almost – and they have separate business units mm-hmm. – the board acts as – as almost as an oversight to make sure that all the business units, all information from business units are flowing into one central location, i.e. the C-suite and management, and that they're not acting in conflict with one another. I mean, you, you have these multinationals with hundreds of thousands of employees. The right hand may not know what the left hand is doing, but and the boards, one of the roles of the board is to make sure that they're all communicating and that it's everything is being done for the interest of the shareholders. So communications, Richard, must be very important. If I don't communicate with my people, I have no way to ever exercise oversight. Well, I think there are several fundamental issues here that have changed, certainly over the last couple of decades, and particularly since Al Gore invented the Internet. You know, we've got two things happening here. First of all, we're in this hyper-democracy. That is, we are used to it being Wall Street or K Street, but businesses and government largely controlling the narrative, top-down, if you will. Now we're in an environment where almost everything starts from the grassroots and moves its way up, which means, to the point about our board still relevant, so much of the cha- so many of the challenges are coming from either state regulators or they're coming from grassroots. Who would imagine when you would become a board member that some uh, online activist group, to be separated from shareholder activists, uh, would make your picture or your home address or your cell phone number public and make you a personal target for not necessarily the products of the company, but someone who was all the way down the line, one of your uh, mm-hmm. providers. And and so the, there are challenges there. The other is that what Iman was talking about in terms of the silos. That's a model that worked for 70 years. You could have all these different silos that had different masters. But when a crisis occurs, when a challenge occurs, information has to move so quickly now that it's very hard. That silo model doesn't really work very well anymore. We saw that at AIG. We see that at other companies. It's very hard to move at the speed of crisis. As I listen to this, it sounds to me like the real gating issue then is how to evaluate whether or not a board is properly performing its oversight duties. We, a moment ago, Sean mentioned fiduciary duties. I think this is a good place to break. When we come back, I want to talk about what these special duties are so that we can start to create some guidelines for how people should be acting when they're on a board, but also as we start to talk of the criminalization of corporate yes. behavior, what's the proper expectation these people should be performing under. So here are What's Working in Washington Extra. We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. 
The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. Thanks to Auric, an international law firm that focuses on technology, energy, and infrastructure finance. Clients worldwide call on it for forward-looking commercial advice on transactions, litigation, and compliance. Learn more at auric.com. What's working in Washington Extra talking about corporate liability and a big trend we all should be concerned about here in the corporate and business world. I'm here with Sean Wright, partner of Blank Roan, Eamon Rizkala, who is a partner with Ackerman, and Richard Levick, founder of Levick. Fiduciary duties. Sean, how would you describe them? What, what's really relevant? How do we keep scoring whether or not a board traditionally has been doing a good job? So it's always difficult, um, Jonathan, to, to keep score, but starting with kind of the duty of care, the duty of loyalties, kind of those traditional things. When you join a board, you have to pay attention to what's going on. And it's your responsibility to pay attention to what's going on in the, the corporation. And what's happened is as the least, you know, the regulators are coming to the boards to figure out what did you know, what didn't you know. So those responsibilities, um, one, they, they start, the breach of those kind of start with, um, the need to have your DNO coverage, but you have to just make sure that you are um, engaged as a board member. That, so that's really interesting to me that you said that because uh, my understanding is that until relatively recently, meaning over the last 10, 15 years, the general model was boards were appointed to represent the interests of the shareholders. Boards just needed to make sure that they were reasonably informed and that they made a decision right or wrong based upon reasonable information. Hire an investment bank, do the fairness opinion, make sure accounts preparing the financial statements. But as long as they were careful, they didn't have to worry. And it, it seems to me that what you're saying now is, is that that's changed. You no, no longer have to worry just about did I satisfy my shareholder obligations? I have to worry about a broader constituency uh, I mean, is that what you're what you're seeing? Yeah, no, definitely. I think what you're seeing is the regulators are coming in and asking for a lot more documents. They're asking the sharehold, the board of directors, what did you know? When did you know it? And what did you do to analyze it? And then it's not just did you follow the rules. Social justice and social responsibility is becoming an issue. You're seeing it with Congress issuing subpoenas. I mean, Facebook is one of your prime examples now. That's in the press. Congress is issuing subpoenas. What what are you doing to protect your users? That's not necessarily an issue for the shareholder in terms of dollars, but it has severe consequences on the shareholder value. And so what you're seeing is all the executives and the board members are taking a broader look at what the responsibilities are. It's no longer, was this the right business decision from a business perspective, but how does it impact us in a public image perspective? But it sounds to me like what you're describing is 
I'm being looked at, if I'm a CEO or director, my conduct's being looked at 2020 hindsight in a lot of circumstances. How am I supposed to deal with this as a CEO or as, as a director? Well, I think it gets much more difficult. Uh, let's first start at the board level. I think some years ago, it, it was pretty clear from a communications point of view what a company had to say. We care about our customers and our shareholders. That was pretty much the mantra. It's much more difficult now. If AIG taught us anything or the banking crisis of a, of a decade ago taught us anything, it's that you don't have to be a customer. You don't have to be a shareholder to get involved and have an impact on the company. And that's, that changes everything from a company's perspective. And then from a regulatory perspective, I think we all grew up believing that mens rea, that some sort of guilty knowledge was required, intent. And we're seeing that watered down. You know, there's the case of WellCare and, and uh, Todd Farah, who was the CEO, and spent a, approximately a year in prison, not because he did anything wrong or had mens rea, but because the court decided to interpret that he must have known somehow, that he should have known, so he must have been quote, deliberately indifferent. And I think when CEOs start to have to worry about being, serving time, not because they did anything wrong, not because there was any money that was lost or ill-gotten gains, but because, as you say, in retrospect, some overly aggressive prosecutor looks at this and says, here's an opportunity to get headlines. That's a problem. So I want to make sure that we define something clearly here, which is that what we're talking about is if a board exercises its ordinary duty of care, Sean, right, then even if the company is liable, the board members individually don't face liability generally, right? Because they, it's ordinary negligence and DNO insurance that uh, uh, Eamon mentioned would apply. So, but what I really care about as a director, personally, from, from an initial standpoint, is if it's if I'm somehow grossly negligent or willfully negligent, right? Is that in other words, I have to be, as Richard, you pointed out, I have to be so out to lunch that the, the judge and the jury are so offended. They say, you should have known. Come on, be real. Or I have to, is it, is it really unfair to say if you're a CEO or a director, you really should avoid doing something that you know is willfully wrong? Or isn't that, seems fair to me. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that, Jonathan, it's it's what Richard alluded to is what the term is, the willful blindness. So you have that duty of care, you have that fiduciary responsibility, and it means that you have to be more proactive and, and aggressive about that. You can't just say, well, I looked at all the documents they gave me as a board member and I didn't see anything wrong. But nowadays where you have conduct that the government is reaching and looking at, they're starting at the higher levels. They're looking at your CEO. And as they're looking at your CEO, then they're going to want to know, well, what did the board know? Were you exercising a care? Were you doing more than just showing up at the board meetings? And to Rich's point, how did you not know? So I think it's um, it, as people are looking, as the government's looking, they're they're putting more onus on the board to do more than just show up. How much of this do you think is due to when corporations themselves are are liable, like Wells Fargo or the uh, the LIBOR rate cases, that the judgments, as large as they are, just become a cost to business? Are people just trying to? find some place in the corporation where somebody will actually say uncle? And is that why they're going after directors more? No, I think so. Even starting going back to the Yates memo, which was a sh was not really a shift, but at least was more enhanced, 
with the Department of Justice looking at individual liability. So when you, again, you have a corporation and a corporation can be criminal liable with all the laws of Congress and everything that helped us establish respondeat superior. The Justice Department is more than, they said, we want more than that because you can't imprison a corporation, Mm -hmm. right? So let's get to the individuals. Let's get to the individuals whose conduct has led to this violation of criminal laws. And then for the Department of Justice, excuse me, you then go higher up. It's not just the low-level person. Is there more people higher up, and that's part of them trying to make their name, is it higher up in the entity that knew about this, that should have known about this, and that should have been proactive in trying to prevent this from occurring? Like a Volkswagen, for example. Exactly like a Volkswagen. And I'll give you an example of some of the stuff that's happening in the Me Too movement, where you've got your CEOs kind of enthralled in, um, sexual harassment. What did the board know? Were people, were your, is your C-suite people not informing your board enough that now it's giving your board liability because they're not even asking the right questions? And if they are asking the right questions, are they asking the follow-up questions? It's not that first level questioning. They have to keep digging. They, they, the government expects the board to dig deeper. You don't take what the CEO or the C-suite is presenting to you at face value. Do you ask those follow-up questions? That's what they want to see. And they want to see documentation of it. Your, the word of the board is not going to be enough. They want to see it in the minutes. They want, to, they want documentary evidence. It's shifted. I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the government would accept much more verbal statements. But now it's reached the point where everything must be documented. You can say, oh, no, we did discuss this issue. But the, the prosecutor is going to turn around, show me where you discussed this. And the board is going to have to demonstrate they asked all the follow-up questions. You know, if you look at our lifetimes, we've gone from, uh, on the spectrum, caveat emptor, buyer beware, you know, which is what initiated the, the Nader movement, if you will, in the 60s and 70s, to now guilt by association, where so many CEOs mm-hmm. or board members are assumed to have knowledge or evil intent. It's, and it's reached the, the courts even. I mean, there was a recent Sixth Circuit opinion where the judge basically said, you know, the fact that this person was making a lot of money and billing a lot, that raises an inference of guilt, that something was wrong. Wow. Uh, and so you're seeing that perception of the drive to succeed sometimes being held against the CEO and pushing your people to hit their numbers and so forth. There's sometimes an inference. The, the government has gone as far as to say there, it, it can raise an inference of wrongdoing. And if I can add, that's why you're seeing in more corporate boards, you're getting counsel already in place, especially to represent independent directors, right? And so they need to have their own counsel to protect themselves. They're going in already knowing that, okay, I need to have a lawyer that if something happens, this lawyer is not associated with management, but will help help advise me on what my duties are so that I can then minimize or or prohibits any kind of criminal or risk. But think about what that does to uh, managing communications. If there is an alertive risk, we saw that with Martha Stewart, you had the board, different law firms, Martha Stewart with her own different, uh, different communications firms, four different communications firms. And then you wonder why these things sort of spiral out of control because there is no uh, singular gatepost for individual messages. This is really important and interesting conversation. It also sounds to me like a lot of this is being driven by social policy and politics. And we'll talk about that and what we think the future is going to look like when we come right back with What's Working in Washington Extra. 
thanks to Auric, an international law firm that focuses on technology, energy, and infrastructure finance. Clients worldwide call on it for forward-looking commercial advice on transactions, litigation, and compliance. Learn more at auric.com. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. And we're back with What's Working in Washington Extra, talking about corporate liability for directors and CEOs. We're here with Eamon Riscala from Ackerman, who's a partner there, Sean Wright, who's a partner, Blank Rome, and Richard Levick, the founder of Levick. I wanted to really continue the conversation around, you know, this sounds to me like really, so if I'm of a certain political viewpoint, I'm in this conversation saying, well, good, I want CEOs and, and board members to be worried about broader social issues. This sounds to me like a lot politics is finding its way into corporate governance in a way that whether it's good or bad, it's it's here now. It's what it sounds like. Jonathan, I think that's absolutely correct. And in fact, what we've seen in traditional politics is year-round politicking. We now cover the midterms about a week and a half after the presidential and vice versa on the presidential after the midterms because it's become entertainment. The same is increasingly you call entertainment. Well, it's not, I didn't say it was good entertainment. And you know, I I miss Ed Sullivan more now than ever before. But I think that um, what, what we're seeing now is the same thing in the boardroom, the same thing in companies, which it's becoming increasingly politicized. We're seeing highly sophisticated activist investors. Some of the things we're seeing in Korea are going to come here. It's, I think it's very interesting in terms of how they're using the Internet, how they're uh, cornering companies. Uh, and, and that's going to become, we're going to see more and more of a challenge. The internet is going to bring hyper-democracy to companies, which are only going to raise more and more challenges. And as you said earlier, a lot of both regulation and response is based on social policy or what we think is social policy. And that only makes capitalism more of a challenge. And you're also yeah. going to see, I, I think your corporate directors or people who are looking to join corporate boards, really doing more due diligence. That's what I would advise. If you're about to join a board, let's do some due diligence so you have a better understanding of what your what the company is about, who your your C-suite team looks, what that team looks like, and how you're going to show up in the boardroom in order to protect yourself as a board member. I've often heard that described as shorthand as culture of compliance. Is that what you're getting at? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it has to be kind of going in first and foremost, right? And I know you have a lot of business people who think, well, how are we going to do the business? Like we are in business to generate revenue, but compliance can't be separate and apart from revenue. And historically, compliance is kind of on a shelf. We've got it. Here's what it looks like. We've got the policies. We've checked the box. We're done. And now I think what's happening and what we're doing Amin and I are just more advising clients about how to integrate compliance and your business operations, how to use that to generate your revenue and stay away from kind of the regulatory landscape and the criminalization. So what kind of things am I looking If I'm a new CEO, what are you going to tell me I should be looking for? No, I mean, one of the things, I mean, just actually about two weeks ago on April 29th, the Department of Justice issued new guidelines for companies about what to look for in a compliance program, because that is what Anytime the government comes knocking on a company's door, the first thing they're going to ask, let's see your compliance program. And they've decided 
because there's been a lot of debate on what constitutes a good compliance program. They issued their guidance, it's about 19 pages, but it includes about 151 questions that a company needs to be able to answer. And I think as a, whether you're in the C-suite or on the board, one of the things that they're going to expect you to do is take that guidance and ask the 151 questions. Can you as a company answer all 151? And they range from, did you do a risk assessment when you developed this program? Did, how is it working in practice? Are you protecting your employees that want to blow the whistle? Because, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of government investigations start with a whistleblower. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see them and they're incentivized. I mean, you see some of these awards to whistleblowers. They're in the millions, tens of millions of dollars. And so how are you protecting them? Because there's sometimes the government's perception, and, and it's not incorrect, is that a lot of times there's retaliation. I mean, there's a real fear of retaliation. inside this. How are you protecting them? But that's as a new board member – Ask, you know what, can you, can you compliance department answer these 151 questions? And the Department of Justice has done a nice job of laying them out in a document that was just published. Is it fair to say that as you look at questions like this, it would put somebody on notice if they were joining a company like a, a Volkswagen or maybe what we're seeing right now with Boeing or with, with Uber? Are these questions really designed to help somebody make an informed decision about whether or not this is a company worth joining? Well, I think one of the challenges you're going to have is whether the company is going to be willing to give you the answers to these questions that before be you even an, join. That may be an answer <laughs> in itself, though. Right. Yeah, it's true. Richard, what about you as we think about how to advise somebody if they're coming and evaluating joining a company or as a board director or CEO? Well, that's, that's really, you know, that question ultimately is for the lawyers who are here in the studio and obviously for the company's lawyers, uh, private lawyers. I think for, for what we see, there are a few challenges here. One, I mean, you really just touched on the issue, the incentivized whistleblower, the, the, the monetization of identifying wrongdoing. And we're now in a gotcha society. And whether it's HR, whether it's the whistleblower, whether it's activists, it's incredibly challenging. You know, I spent an immense amount of time in both U.S. and U.K. prisons. I used to work for the U.S. Federal Bureau of Prisons. I'm glad you yeah. added that. I know. So <laughs> I, I was like, wait a minute. That was well. Uh, yes, Jonathan. Thank you for having me on without my parole officer. Right. But, but I but I do think you know it meant that I spent a lot of time looking to the eyes of criminals, and I'll never forget listening to Andy Fasto, the CFO, former CFO of Enron. And he, he has a great speech, and he talks about, I'm not trying to uh, absolve myself of any guilt. I just want to point out the fact that through the entire process, I went to the best lawyers, the best accountants, and followed their advice every single step of the way, and still, look what happened to me. And with that, I'll, I'll, I'll end this panel. I've really enjoyed having you here. Ima Riscala, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sean Wright, thank you. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. And Richard Levick, as always, it's great to have you here. And by the way, thanks for helping arrange another great panel here for our show. Thank you so much, John. Executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two DC region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.